This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's this like false sense that like sex is supposed to be natural and like it's not. Yeah, maybe the mechanism to seek out pleasure and have sex is natural, but like it's not like we're just born and we know how to do all the things necessarily. Mm-hmm. Okay, welcome back to Open Late, a Soulfire production. I am your host, Jessica Spandiari, and today I am so excited because I have a new friend on the show and I got to be with her on her show a couple weeks ago, which was really fun. She actually interviewed Lauren and I for the very first time um, outside of the Open Late podcast, which was just such a blast. So I'm going to introduce you to Nicoletta Heidegger now. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She practices here in Los Angeles. We actually met at a retreat, a one-day retreat that we were doing to support um, all types of women who do different types of sex work. And we just found such a love for wanting to help people grow. And so she does that through therapy. And she offers outdoor sessions with equine facilitation as well, which I hope we get into today. This is when you're working with horses to help people connect um, and really release trauma, which I think is just so fascinating that you can do that with the help of animals and they're so intelligent. But Nicoletta also offers coaching, consulting, education, and retreats to people all around the world. So she is the host of Sluts and Scholars, the podcast I mentioned earlier, which is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where she tries to help you keep your sex smart and your smarts sexier, which I freaking love. And we were just laughing earlier because I'll let you share this. How did you put it? Oh, talk smart, fuck smarter? Yes. I was like, (laughs) that's the best, I think, slogan for a podcast I've ever heard. Well, I mean, you know, as you know, the interwebs do not like sexual content. And so I try to have different variations of whatever I can say about my sex therapy that I do and the podcast, because otherwise... I can't post anything. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just going to get banned. Well, yeah, exactly. welcome <laughs> welcome to Open Late. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's fun. We keep getting to connect in really fun ways. And I just want you to share a little bit about yourself, I guess, with my audience. Um, aside from that amazing bio, you know, what really got you into wanting to be a therapist? And how does one decide, okay, I'm going to become a sexologist? Yeah. I mean, I did have a great therapist growing up that I started with when I was about 12 or 13. And she actually ended up specializing in some areas of like sex and relationships uh, as well. And the family I grew up in was pretty non-judgmental about who I was and how I developed. Um, There's a story I like to tell people where I was really young. I, I don't really remember this, but my parents told me where they walked in and I was like humping the bedpost you know, like grind, like try, I was basically masturbating on the bedpost, but I didn't know what that's what it was. I called it exercising. And my parents walked in and my dad was like, Oh, what do we do? Uh, you know, turn to my (laughs) mom, Jamie, what do we do? And my mom was like, Oh, it's okay. You know, she's almost done. Just let, just let her finish. (laughs) Let her finish. Yeah. (laughs) Let her finish. Yeah. So 
Um, luckily, they were pretty supportive of most anything that I was doing, even if they didn't always understand it. Um, I'm still teaching them a lot about things, but they were always open about that. And um, I had some great people in my life um, who just kind of taught me different things along the way. So in high school, I ended up kind of being the person that people would often come to and ask sex questions of um, who they were not ashamed or embarrassed to ask things of and have those conversations with, or they would ask me to ask in class, you know, when we would have our lame sex ed classes that barely covered anything. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I started in high school. I started doing this thing, which was pretty new at the time where I wouldn't do any sort of sex stuff with someone unless they were willing to get tested and talk about like STI status. Um, and I learned that from, a my sibling's babysitter actually growing up. And she taught me that she used to do this and so I started doing that, continued it through college and knew I wanted to get into mental health. And uh, I don't know, I think I always just had this kind of fuck you attitude and was drawn towards things that were like taboo. And mm -hmm. so talking about sex openly and being sexual was one of them. So yeah, in, in college, I ended up working at the like sexual health resource center up at Stanford and people could come and get free condoms and sex toys and advice and peer counseling and we would have events and uh you know all sorts of things and then by the time I was a senior I had a, a sex column um I was actually the mascot uh in college and so the it was a tree <laughs> so <laughs> too good the, uh yeah the column was called sex talks with the tree and uh yeah it just kind of all came together and then by the time I got to grad school for therapy I really realized just how much even in the mental health field, people weren't talking about sex. So I knew that I wanted to specialize in it both for myself, but also for, for the field. Mm, that's amazing. So it was developing from a very young age for you. And I just have to comment on this because I think we had probably very similar experiences then as young girls, because I remember that I was masturbating from a very young age and certainly got caught like humping the bed, the pillow, the the bed post. Yeah, whatever you we can had. get your hands on. Yeah, whatever I can get my pelvis on. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like I definitely got walked in on like making out. We had bunk beds, my sister and I. There were these red like metal um, posts and definitely got walked in on like making out with the post. And I think I was like 11. Um, but yeah, yeah well, most, so. most kids learn from an early age that if you touch this thing in this place, that it feels good. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily directly sexual. It's just like we are pleasure able bodies. And so mm -hmm. we try to find ways to make that happen. And yeah, man, I, it was like the pole at the park was my favorite, my favorite instrument. Um, but I was actually clearing out my family's uh, storage unit yesterday and I found my first like masturbatory device, which was uh, one of those giant back massagers from Sharper Image. Oh my God. My yeah. mom got me. Yeah, my mom got it for me because I was a horse rider for like sore muscles. And the first time I ever masturbated, like actually thinking of a sexual context, I think it was Justin Timberlake. Um, I had my Sharper Image thing and I saw it yesterday and I, I took a picture at so many good memories. Yeah, that's so great. Your very first vibrator. <laughs> yeah. You touched on something a minute ago, you know, and I think we're we're talking about it, right? Having not learning shame yet, right? As a child and and feeling what feels good in your body before you realize that it's wrong or bad. Well, mm -hmm. that society is going to tell you that. Um and a lot of parents don't know how to deal with it. So it's amazing that you had such great supportive 
you know, parents that were like, okay, we're going to figure this out, but we're not going to, you know, make it a bad thing. Um, I was going to ask because, you know, you talked about, you know, people coming in and you wanted to support people with all types of issues around sex. And I have this theory that maybe not all, like, of course, not all mental health issues stem from, you know, shame around sexuality, but I think it's a lot. I think it's a lot more than people realize that that is the root of so much. I think because we learn this at such an early age. And I think sex is one of the most inherent human things about us. Um, and so when we make that wrong or shameful, that bleeds into all these other areas of our lives. So do you feel like that that's such a root cause for people um, in their mental health journey of trauma? Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't even know if I would just say it's sexual, but I do think that's a, a huge part of it, but just shame in general. I think it's it's almost less about like what's actually going on for somebody and like how they're feeling about what's going on and their judgments about what's going on. I mean, I think that's the most common thing I get in my practice, whether it be a sex topic or not, is just shame. Shame about the feelings that you're experiencing, shame about the things that you're fantasizing about, shame about um, very normal emotional reactions that are coming up, shame about uh dark thoughts that you have about someone or something or an experience. Like it's just, people want to know that they're normal. And I think we're just taught and no, no one talks about so many of these things. And so we're just sort of taught that if you're not sort of seeing it in a public way, that there's something wrong with you and there's something bad about you. So I think shame is a huge reason that people come to see me in my practice. Mm, yeah. Do people come to see you at all stages of their journey? Or do you find that people end up in therapy more or less when they're in crisis mode? Unfortunately, I think it's in crisis mode. Um, I do have some folks come in like preventatively and that's my favorite. Um, that's what I really encourage folks to do is that you don't have to wait to get support until things are at a crisis level. I think in fact, it's really hard to address stuff when you're in that fight or flight space because you're less open to like connection and social engagement and taking in new information. But I think because there's still a stigma around mental health stuff and as humans, we just tend to sort of put things off until we get so uncomfortable with something that we like are pushed to change it that, yeah, people often come when it's like a last resort or where they've really feel like they've gotten stuck um, and where they're usually in some type of crisis in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. I know for, for Pasha and I, um, and I talk about this on my show, you know, we're actively in therapy right now and we ended up there because things got really kind of hairy and maybe we weren't like full on crisis mode. Um, but it was the first time that we were like, we don't enjoy being around each other. That's kind of a problem for our marriage mm, right now. Yeah. You know, we're just, there was a lot of friction all the time. And so we ended up in couples therapy and we did this once before where we went because things weren't good. We actually weren't sure if we wanted, like Pasha wanted to have children and I was pretty sure I didn't. So we're like, we should probably, probably figure this out because he's like, I really want to have kids. And we went and things, we smoothed things out in like six weeks and we stopped going. And then we went back two years later, you know, cause things got hairy and this was about six, seven months ago. And now things are amazing, but we're loving the therapy because we're able to work on things that we probably could never, right, in crisis mode, as you said, because they're just not available. Um, 
And I think actually we might have had this conversation before you and I or touched on it where I was like, I love therapy and I'm staying in. <laughs> well, but I think we're, we're also both in these fields of like health and wellness and growth now. And so I think it's definitely a, a bubble that's more inviting to like continually do that growth in a preventative, proactive way. Um, but in a lot of spaces, it's just not seen that way. And I think I, I'm guilty of this too, even though it's my field. Like when I think of like health or doctor's appointments that I need to do. I put that shit off as long as I fucking can. Like yeah. something that I've come across in my own healing things is that I I do tend to wait until things get uncomfortable. It's almost like the, the trauma Olympics. Like how strong can I be to just like white knuckle this and get through it, whether that's I need a drink of water or I have to use the bathroom. And I've really been trying to work on that for myself. Um, yes. And I think that's something in our capitalistic culture that we all need to work on because disembodiment is such a tool for capitalism. Like we are taught to not listen to what our body's saying because it's like no pain, no gain. You just got to not listen and keep trucking forward. So it's, it's a lot of unlearning. So I definitely understand why people wait until things aren't great. But I, I think just like going to the gym for physical stuff, some people work better when they have an accountability space, myself included. So if you're having trouble carving out time that's just for you, get an accountability buddy and a therapist where even if there's not something in crisis, it's just one hour a week that you can be like, this is my time to do whatever I need to do to talk about whatever I need to talk about. And it's just carved out for you and you're investing financially, emotionally, energetically in yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to healing trauma because it healing shame and trauma because you're saying that like I'm worth this time. Yeah. And when you send those kinds of signals to yourself, like your body, it really starts to show up for you too. Like it will yeah. come kind of bounce back very quickly. And I love everything you're saying because it's, you know, it can take a really long time to become sick, right? Years and years and years of like excess inflammation and whatever else that, you know, breeds. Um but your body is like extremely magical and, and resilient, right? It can withstand so much. Um, but then it can be a very quick process a lot of times to healing. Like the body bounces back very fast. So once you do start to listen to it and pay attention, it's almost like it starts to pay attention to you and like receives that and joins in. At least that's my experience in the sort of like wellness and healing space is like something that took someone 10 years to develop. They can work out in like, two months, but please don't wait 10 years to <laughs> start yeah. being proactive. And, and I think we're moving in that direction. Like people are starting to really value and normalize, you know, and self-care, meaning like really care for yourself, not like go get a manicure, pedicure. Yeah. I mean, that's a nice item on the menu, but like that's, <laughs> it is. I, I prefer to call it self-parenting. Yes. Um, and so even if you didn't have like the best parent as a model, like learning how to be the best parent to yourself. And sometimes that is the manicures and the bathtub time and just pleasure stuff that's fun. But it's also like challenging yourself to do things that you know are good for you, like going to therapy and eating healthily and then knowing afterwards that it was like worth it or mm -hmm. knowing when you need to take a day off or yeah, like being a being a good caretaker, a good caregiver to yourself which is also sometimes needing to like check yourself. <laughs> yeah. And just knowing that like being in the receptive mode or doing something that feels passive and just resting is just as valuable as all the doing and all the giving that you're doing externally. Um, because that's like what we're 
really trying to achieve like balance and homeostasis. And if you're 90% doing and only like 10% resting, that's just going to end up in a really imbalanced and it's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. But when I think about the putting, putting off stuff with the people that come to see me for sex therapy, I think it's often rooted in this belief that if you're needing to work on sex, that there's something wrong with you and the relationship. And that there's this sort of, even if you know, logically, this isn't true, there's just this sort of like hope or Disney romance, whatever thing that we're taught, like if it's not spontaneous, um, then something's wrong. And so I think people are just end up waiting to be like, well, spontaneously, maybe we'll just want to fuck or like spontaneously, this will just fix itself. And so Mm -hmm. people end up waiting instead of working at their sex life all the time, which is necessary. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, uh, a lot of unlearning when people come to see me. Yeah. And I mean, just to like touch on that, you think it's so normal to get, like, we think it's so normal to get a coach or, you know, someone to support us in all these other areas of our life. But when it comes to something that we feel like is so private, we're like, oh no, we don't need support. We've got to like do it on our own. Well, yeah. And then there's this like false sense that like sex is supposed to be natural and like, it's not <laughs> like, like, yes, maybe the really challenge to have, yeah, maybe the mechanism to seek out pleasure and have sex is natural, but like, it's not like we're just born and we know how to do all the things necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's in our culture. It's definitely not natural. You have to collaborate and work at it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. So you just, this is the next kind of direction I want to move into because you said when people end up coming to see you, right? Why do you find most people end up, you know, in your office? We talked about kind of shame being the root, but how does that then present itself? So as you said in the lovely introduction, thank you. um, I'm a marriage family therapist, but I specialize in sex therapy. Um, And then I also do equine uh, assisted therapy, which um, is wonderful for all sorts of presenting issues, Um, sex and relationship stuff included, which uh, there's no... There's no bestiality involved, just uh, making sure people out there know that the equine stuff does not include that, but it's very relational work. Um, So people come to see me for all sorts of things in the realm of sex. And I think often they think it's just about sex and then it's never just about sex. But probably the most common thing would be uh, differing libidos. Uh, And that's sort of people will say, like, uh, my partner desires sex more than I do or Um, we're just like not lining up with the kind of sex that we're wanting to have. Um, I see a lot of people who are not experiencing the type of pleasure that they're wanting. Um, so that could be people, mostly people with vulvas who have never experienced an orgasm or it's like infrequent or they're, uh, just not enjoying themselves the way that they would like to. Um, I also see a lot of clients who have pelvic pain, um, or Mm. pain during sex, um, or some kind of intimate connection. Um, I see a lot of folks who are navigating opening up their relationship, um, whether that be to non-monogamy or to kink, uh, and just alternative lifestyle folks. Uh, and then I also see people who are struggling with desires and fantasies that are either evoking a lot of shame within them or even to the level of they are illegal and unethical to enact in real life. And they're trying to figure out how to manage that. Um, and then I see folks who are struggling with gender identity and gender expansiveness. So it really runs the gamut to like anything 
anything you could think of. But yes, I think shame is at the root of a lot of them. Lack of comprehensive sex ed is at the root of a lot of them and them having gone to other doctors and practitioners who have not talked to them about sex. So I get a lot of people who are like at their last straw. Yeah. Wow. And it really does. It's all over the spectrum, kind of in every direction. I I, I love hearing that. So thank you for sharing because I think it's so important for people listening, um, you know, to hear that these are all of the different reasons that you can end up working with someone to support you. And if any of these things that you're hearing, you're identifying with, then that could be a reason to to seek out some, you know, professional support and that it could lead you into having the best sex of your life, likely after, you know, you unlock a few things. Yeah. And again, like we were talking about before, I'm kind of listing some of the maybe more like crisis level things that people will come see me for. But I also get folks and I would encourage you to go, even if you're like, oh, sex is good, but I want it to be great. Or Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I have some difficulties with the way I feel in my body just to like really maximize your pleasure potential and experiences like that is a valid reason to come seek out a sex therapist or sex coach as well. Um, just to go from, yeah, just to expand a little more. Yeah. I, I want to kind of ask a question about pelvic pain because I recently sure. had on a guest, um, who's a pelvic floor and core expert and she specializes in, um, a lot of fitness type of therapy. Um, but I'm interested in it actually from your perspective and point of view as a therapist who's probably working on, you know, well, not probably, you're working on more the emotional aspect of maybe how this ended up being a thing, not necessarily the physical. Um, Do you find that there are trends with women who have pelvic floor pain? Yeah. And I just want to say like, I do specialize in the emotional piece, but anytime someone is coming to me for sex-related stuff, it is always what I would call a biopsychosocial approach. Mm. So sex is something that happens in our bodies. We are definitely impacted by the sociocultural values around us. Um, And then also the physical and emotional things going on. It's It's a whole web of like interconnectedness. And so anytime someone's coming to see me, I am usually, if they are not already, encouraging them to work with a team of people whether that be a sexual medicine specialist, a an inf- a sex-informed urologist or gynecologist, a pelvic floor therapist, um, someone who's looking at hormones, someone who's looking at vitamin deficiencies. Like There are so many connections. And mm. so I'm often referring people out to go do those things additionally because it's not just the emotional piece. There, It's how they all intersect together. But I think what I like to tell people is it's really important to see what your body needs. Um, And so I think there are a lot of people out there who experience pelvic pain because of things that they were taught uh, growing up. And so whether that be someone telling you that you needed to do kegels and have a tight vagina um, or somebody telling you that like virginity was really important and people basically end up like holding the tension in their pelvis um, so I would I would say the main trend for pelvic pain that I see is people who are holding their anxiety and physical representations of their anxiety or their trauma um, or something that somebody said, you know, about sexuality, and they are holding that in their physical body in their pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just like some of us may have lower back pain or neck pain when we are extra stressed out. Um, there are people who like really hold that in their pelvic area. 
Um, I also see an overlap with people who have jaw pain and pelvic pain because the jaw and the pelvis are connected. Um, and so a lot of people who clench and have TMJ, you'll also see them uh, having pelvic pain. Wow. I had no idea that those two things are connected. Yeah. It's, I, all, it's all connected. I struggle with TMJ like a lot. Actually, I recently just started getting Botox in my jaw because my dentist offered it to me after years. She finally went and you know, was trained in it and it's helped a little bit, but that's kind of a bandaid on a symptom that I would love to sort of dig into, you know, what we're talking about. What is the root? What, you know, trauma or um, what kind of years of stress am I holding and, and focusing on this area? Um, yeah. Wow. Thank you. Sure. Thank you I mean, I think it's worth, you know, tidbit. not not your therapist or your doctor, but like it could be worth going to a pelvic floor therapist because they will even do like jaw massage and things in your mm. mouth because of the connection uh, there that folks experience. And um, I think another trend that I see is people thinking that pain is normal. So I think especially for people with um, with a vulva that we are taught that there are so many things that you're just supposed to like grin and bear it as being a, like a person mm -hmm. with a vagina like period pains and cramps and things like that along the way. Yes. And then, so people will have like really painful periods where they're like literally vomiting from the pain. Um, and people will have pain during sexual experiences and think like, Oh, this is just normal. Like sex is supposed to hurt, especially the first time. And it's just not true. So it's like lack of sex education. And then people are going to doctors who are not informed about human sexuality and sexual health. And so they're just being told like, oh, just have you tried lube um, or have you tried relaxing or like stuff yeah. that's not fucking helpful. Um, and so then our body evolutionarily responds to pain in an avoidance way. And so a big thing I see is if there's any pain, then libido is minimal, if not gone. Um, and that's sort of the body's way of protecting us against pain. So if you think of like going back to like cave person times, if you ate something that made you puke, I mean, even now times, if you ever got sick from alcohol or got food poisoning, you probably weren't like, oh, I really want to drink that Malibu rum again. Cause I just puked everywhere from it. Yeah. So your body is responding in the only way it knows how, which is, oh, this thing made me sick or brought me pain. Let's avoid it. And so people with pelvic pain they're usually also responding to the fear of the pain happening. And so there's like a, a preemptive tensing of the muscles. Mm -hmm. um, and so their body kind of does that to protect them from pain. But then your desire, your arousal functioning may shut off because your body's like, well, what do we need to do to avoid this pain at all costs? So I see a big overlap between quote unquote low libido um, and I put that in quotes because libido is so much more complicated than just saying high or low libido. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's really overall health and wellness. Um, when we think about pelvic pain. Yeah, it really is a whole picture and, and kind of something you mentioned earlier, um, had me thinking back. I just had a conversation with another friend who's a therapist, Lindsay Locke, and we were talking about sex ed or the, the lack thereof. Um, and how, you know, you were, you're only taught, um, how to, you know, avoid STDs and abstinence and, um, basically everything about it is a negative picture that really, I think incites a lot of contraction in women. 
Um, and, you know, as we talked about virginity earlier. So I think even thinking about how it probably starts there, right? In like grade school, where you're contracting that area. And as you said, like going to a space of like, okay, this is just supposed to feel bad. So when someone has their first sexual experience, they're already, their body is so used to associating it with pain, even at the thought of it, or like with something bad or wrong, that it's like, then any association that you have with sex and your body kind of becomes contracted or there is pain, you think it's normal because like, that's all, you know, rather than, yeah, teaching like pleasure. Um, yeah, it is so fascinating to think of what we're really born into. Um, and unless you have these types of conversations or you hear them from somewhere, this is just the sort of auto programming that we have around sex. It's a lot to unpack. (laughs) Oh, it it certainly is. And and that's, you know, what I would help clients do. So you don't definitely don't have to unpack that all by yourself. Um, there are definitely ways to hire a Sherpa to help mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to get into sort of another trend because I think that people are saying, oh, you know, polyamory and open relationship styles are becoming um way more popular and more mainstream and I, I don't know if you've seen an increase in, you know, your clients coming in and wanting to talk about this or wanting to give it a try. And, you know, I know that you're actually also in your personal life practicing non-monogamy. So sometimes I wonder, you know, do people, you know, clients come to me for coaching because obviously I have this platform, but even before I had the podcast, people would sort of seek me out about it. And I'm like, am I attracting these people? Because it's like my lifestyle or is it trending and it's definitely becoming more mainstream in my point of view. Um, so what has that sort of been like as you receive maybe more clients in that realm? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know if I'm receiving more clients now. I think, um, it's been somewhat consistent, but I, I think I always sort of branded myself as somebody who was, was open to alternative lifestyle folks. And I don't know if like, numbers are increasing or if you said just like people talking about it more and it being more mainstream is just increasing so people are like oh this is happening more but or are people just like talking about it more openly um i'm really not sure what the the research is really saying on it um but i do think now it's probably the most accessible that it's been just because there are so many more podcasts and tv shows and things where people are talking about this and so I think it is sort of becoming a thing where the expected relationship isn't this sort of like male female monogamous thing that now there's a lot of other iterations and permutations of like what relationships can look like and so not assuming that I think is definitely becoming more talked about and so that's sort of offering people a lot of more community and resources to be able to explore this mm-hmm. um and so my hope is that there'll just be more resources. Yeah. Same. Um, what do you share with clients who maybe are saying like, we're considering opening up, right? It's, um, we'll just go like in my case, right. Um, man and woman married for 10 years and they're like, we kind of want to have sex with other people. (laughs) (laughs) How do you support them? How do you support them from like that point on? I mean, firstly, I think I actually use a lot of approaches, even with people who aren't open or opening up, um, that I would use with non-monogamous people just in terms of how to help 
them manage feelings of jealousy or uncomfortable feelings that come up. Like, I think we can learn a lot from the communities of non-monogamy for how we look at emotions and things that arise um, during a relationship. I also kind of use similar approaches, even if someone's feeling ashamed about just being sexually attracted to someone else. Maybe they have no interest in opening their relationship, but they feel so bad that they were like fantasizing about someone outside of their relationship. So I think the first thing I do is normalize it. I normalize the human desire to be interested in multiple people and multiple things and that one person can't provide all the things. Um, so I just, I think the first thing would be to normalize. Um, then probably the next thing I would try to ask is like how much work they've done on themselves um, and how much work they have done on really investigating what opening up means. Um, I think sometimes folks come in and they're like assuming it's going to be easier <laughs> or something. Um, but there's a lot of emotional work and behind the scenes stuff that I think is required. Um, and then I'm also going to want to ask like, not in a judgmental way of like, why would you want to do this? But like, be curious about what they're looking to get out of this and what is inspiring them to open up. Um, I think there's so many reasons why people are attracted to opening up, but I definitely want to know that they're doing it for the quote unquote, I don't want to say right reasons, but reasons that maybe give them a better chance of success. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, yeah, right reasons is tough. It's like healthier reasons, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I like, I don't know. I wouldn't say, I don't think I would say that yeah. to a client. Like this is, these are the right reasons and these are the mm -hmm. wrong reasons. But I think if they're looking to open up just because things are not going well in their relationship, and that doesn't mean that like they're getting everything they want. Cause I think people open up too, because they want to expand their love and their experiences. So it's, it's fine if you're looking for something that you're not necessarily getting, but like what kind of space is their relationship in mm -hmm. and can they withstand the pressure that this will put on their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many people kind of chat me up about opening up when things are bad. And, you know, I'm not a therapist by any means. I am a coach, but, and, you know, these are people who might DM me, so they're not a client. So I don't have to give them like great coaching. Um, unless they're working with me, but I'm always yeah, like, free, don't free do advice. it. We get like, a lot yeah, of those. Yeah. My advice, <laughs> this is not, this is not my coaching. My advice is do not open up to like save your marriage. It's not going to work. It's kind of like having a baby to save your marriage. It's a whole other person that, you know, you, that you're bringing into your relationship and there will be feelings and hard times. And, um, but that's and not on, on the say, flip side, it may save your relationship and make it even better. Um, and I think there's a lot of work. To, it's not just the choice of let's do it and without doing all the like homework during and yeah. beforehand. Because I was going to share too that there's a lot of there's a lot of people I think in the in the space of non-monogamy who talk about it who are who are like you have to be in such a great place yourself to do this well and do it right. And I'm like that's also not the answer because then you'll never get there. It's like yeah, we're all in progress. <laughs> yeah, version of yourself or your relationship. You can definitely do it from a messy place and you can do it from a really solid place and have a really messy experience in it. So every, you know, everyone's experience is going to be different and it is all so worth it. Um, at the end of the day, just to expand and get uncomfortable and, um, yeah. And then also when people try it, 
I always remind them, like, if it's something that you don't want to do, you don't have to keep doing it. Just because you like open up doesn't mean like now you're open, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, th- this just kind of popped into my head, but I think it's like, I think it's sort of fucked up that we put this onus on people to really do this work only when they're considering opening up. Like, I wish we did this for monogamous relationships too. <laughs> like, I, like you said, I don't think that we need to be in a whatever perfect, there's no perfect place, but that we need to be in a, a perfect place or love ourselves unconditionally to be in a relationship because then we'd all be waiting forever to connect with other people. But like, I don't think the things I'm saying are just reserved for opening up. I wish this was true for monogamous relationships as well of like, what work have I done on myself? So it's, it's, I mean, look, we have a 60 plus percent divorce rate in quote unquote monogamous relationships in the country. So I wish people were doing this for all kinds of relationships. Yes. And I love that you said quote unquote monogamous relationships because where my mind always goes is, you know, about 50% of monogamous relationships aren't really because there's a lot of non-consensual, non-monogamy happening in those places. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Um, So yeah, that's always my favorite. But to to your point, I really love it when I have listeners, actually many of my listeners, maybe the majority of my listeners are monogamous, right? And they're always like, this has been so helpful for my marriage. We have no intention of opening up. However, now we're exploring kink or we are like you said, not having shame around just telling, telling my, my husband or my wife that I thought that that girl was really attractive. Right. Mm -hmm. And I like, can openly be myself and accept myself on a deeper level rather than trying to deny this basic biology that I have. That's like this physiological response, um, which I think is really beautiful. The more of that sort of the better. And Yeah. 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 I'm also like a huge fan of just like outsourcing resources. And so I'm probably like annoyingly, I don't want to say resourceful in a way like, you know, but like, I feel like I have a list of great resources and I'm like almost annoyingly assigning of these resources to clients of mine, <laughs> maybe like too much. So where like, anytime they mention something, I'm like, here's a resource for that. Here's a resource for that. And a lot of times people are, you know, it's hard to get folks to maybe do their homework <laughs> in between sessions. It's hard for me to do my own therapy homework too uh, sometimes. So I really like, um, there's one that a colleague of mine, Dr. Jana, um, put out there and it's sort of like a, she was on my podcast, Sluts and Scholars, and it's like a basically a class that you can take with a partner all about opening up. Um, and you can take quizzes based on like, how jealous do you feel? How do you, what's your like resiliency tools for when you feel uncomfortable? Like how open are you actually to non-monogamy? What are your like cultural? So there's all these like layers. And so I'm a big fan of stuff like that, of books, of, um, you know, all sorts of resources. And so to me, it's like, like you said, you don't have to be in a perfect place. There's no perfect place, but the willingness to do the work. I think, and to have those conversations and gain resources, even if you're not opening up, is going to be beneficial for your relationship. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm going to grab a link from you, actually, and I'd love oh, to sure. link that in our show notes. You said Dr. Jana? Yes. Yeah, that sounds like a really amazing tool and something I've actually I've been kind of inspired now to create more resources based on people writing in and asking questions that, you know, six months in, I'm starting to see like, these are the themes 
It's a lot yeah. of people who are considering it and like, where do we go? Step mm-hmm. one. So I love this. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. And your yeah. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I sometimes I'm like, is this a broken record? But people really do have the same question over and over again. So I guess you can never hear enough of this, you know, type of information. Well, as um, you know, sometimes it's hard to go from insight to um, integration. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes we have to hear things over and over until we start to integrate it. Yeah. I, so this is actually funny that you said that because I kind of wanted to ask you a personal question. We've talked sure. a lot about your practice and a lot about your clients. But so how has your journey through non-monogamy been? And how, like, how long have you been practicing? Yeah, I think I was one of the folks, even though I didn't have a lot of shame about sex, I definitely was not as exposed to non-monogamy earlier on. And I think my sort of modeling growing up in LA, it was a lot of the cheating type stuff. So like I myself had stepped out of the bounds of early relationships of mine. Like when I would have an interest in someone else, I thought that I either had to like leave the relationship or had to do it secretly. There wasn't a lot of experiences with how I could make this work um, until probably I got to college. Um, and I lived in these like co-ops where there were a lot of people exploring kink and non-monogamy. Um, so I definitely like knew I had an interest in being with lots of people, but I really didn't have the language or the experience for it probably until, um, I, I mean, I knew it logically probably before that, but like really until college. Um, and I remember for me, it was just a lot of work that I needed to do that I still continue to do around feelings of like jealousy and ownership and feeling like the most important or feeling like the chosen partner. And, and so I definitely had a lot of learning to do um, for myself because, yeah, there were just a lot of feelings that came up that sort of triggered stuff that I needed to, to work on when I considered non-monogamy. Um, so college, I think, and working at the Sexual Health Resource Center and learning about that and being exposed to different kinds of relationships really allowed me to see like what was possible. Um, and I think in my own relationships, it's been hard work. Like I'm still working at it. My, my partner and I, and I think if you date a therapist, be ready to like do therapy from the beginning of your relationship. (laughs) So like even before anything, you know, any difficult conversations were being had, my partner is not in the field. And I was like, let's go to therapy. (laughs) And I think he was like, why? Nothing's wrong. And I'm like, because I'm the fucking therapist. (laughs) Um, So I, I learn a lot from doing this work and finding resources for clients, but I'm also doing the work simultaneously um, on myself. And I think couples therapy with a non-monogamy sex positive therapist has been helpful. Um, doing those types of classes, reading those books that I've talked about. Um, and I think, yeah, something that I've noticed for myself is no matter how much I'm in this field and no matter how much I've done the work, the work just keeps coming. (laughs) So I think just the reminder that like, even for someone in this field, who's doing this work every day, I still have to work on this and have these difficult, sometimes difficult, sometimes wonderful conversations with my partner. Um, but I think to me, the thing that's been most helpful in my relationship is realizing and embracing the idea that we're all kind of non-monogamous in some Mm -hmm. way, shape or form. And not to mean you have to open up your relationship, but like love is expansive. And hopefully if you have people that you care about in your life and people that are important to you, that you can see that you can love and appreciate 
so many different things about so many different people. And so I think that's been really important to me and my current partner is like, how do we see that these additional connections, whether that be sexual or not sexual, are important to making us who we are and like expanding our ability to like show up and care for each other. Um, Mm. And I, but I think something I've come into contact with that's a little bit difficult is sometimes the partners that have the qualities that I'm looking for in other areas are not into non-monogamy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's been an ongoing struggle for me sometimes to find folks who are able to be open to some of the things that I want to do or want to try, but also have the qualities that I'm looking for in terms of a partner. And so some of this is my own work to do to figure out like what's really important to me uh, in a relationship. What, what am I really looking for? Um, and I can find different things, you know, in, in different people. Um, I also think for me, it's, I'm so busy. And so there is a part of me that often struggles with this idea of like, hierarchical versus Mm non-hierarchical because there's a part of me that really loves having a primary partner Um, and like having a primary thing where I know we're like each other's number one priority. And there's something that feels really like safe for my attachment anxiety about that, to be able to Mm -hmm. have that. And um, there's other times where I'm like, fuck that. Like this is so, this feels so backwards in a lot of ways. So I think yeah, just coming back to that idea of like, I'm continuing to grow and try on different things all the time and like do this work. And even if you know you want to open up or not to just encourage people to continue being curious um, about the feelings that come up on trying different things and on not being afraid to be a little bit uncomfortable at times to see, see what happens. Wow. That was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing Um, you know, your story and your version of, um, open and how that's kind of evolved over the years, because I think it's, it's just wonderful to hear. And it's very inspiring and encouraging for everyone who's listening. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, it's amazing that you are in the field that you're in and can offer all of the wisdom that you have from your experiences. I love my therapist, uh, our, our couples therapist with Pasha. I'm like, kind of obsessed with her. So I talk about her a lot on the show, but (laughs) she does not have a background in, you know, non-monogamy or at least not one that she shared. And sometimes I think that, you know, it it is a bit limited when we talk about our, um, which we don't often bring to to therapy a lot because it's not really an area of our relationship that we need a ton of support with at this point. Um, But yeah, I think anyone working with you is just going to have so much resource and so much value. And I appreciate you. sharing that it is a journey and you're still going through it. We are that onion that's never going to find a center. Um, But that's what makes you so great at what you do um, because you're always like in the question of, you know, how can I evolve? And it's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I, and I think like, I'm so glad you have a great connection with your therapist and look, you don't need to find someone who's gone through everything that you've gone through to connect with them on a therapeutic level. Like if I only saw people where I experienced exactly what they're experiencing, I don't know if I could see anyone because everyone's unique intersections are important. And if you're interested in opening up and you're going to someone who's like very classically monogamous and they're judging you, 
for wanting to do this. Or I've had therapists say to me like, oh, well, I've only seen this like explode and never work. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I've had therapists who I spend most of the time like educating them about what this is. I think that gets into a territory where it's maybe not going to be helpful for you. So that's why it's good to find someone who is, you know, informed or whether they've done it or not, but someone who has knowledge about this. And that's true for the sex stuff too. Like I get a lot of clients who have gone to regular therapy forever and feel like they can't talk to their therapist about sex. So they come to me as an adjunct therapist. Um, And I'm glad that there's this specialization, but I almost wish we didn't have to have it. This is stuff that should get taught to therapists more. Um, So yeah, I think if you're getting into the territory of feeling judged by your therapist, needing to educate them more than you're spending time on the process, or if they're assuming that your issues are because you're into openness, find a new therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Okay. Well, even though I don't want to, I think this is a great place to close out today. Um, But this has been such a great conversation. I know we could probably talk for another hour. Any uh, resources or places where people can find you um, and the podcast? Well, thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate this conversation. It's always nice to be on the the other side of the interview. Um, You can listen to my podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Again, it's called Sluts and Scholars. I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Uh, If you're interested in the work that I do or wanting to hire me for something, um, you can find me at nicolettavheidegger.com or on Instagram at therapy with Nicoletta. Um, And yeah, it's a long name, Nicoletta Heidegger. I'm sure you'll find it if you Google it. Uh, You can find other things that I do. Uh, And yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Okay, you guys, that is a wrap. And I just am so grateful that you are enjoying the show. Uh, Please don't hesitate to leave us a review on Apple iTunes or Spotify. And you can see the video version of this podcast on YouTube as well. Until next week. Bye, loves. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.